Welcome to Real Life Moms. I'm your host, Lisa Foster. And Real Life Moms is a podcast that's all about moms having real conversations, sharing resources, and telling their inspiring stories. Our mission is to connect moms by talking about these topics that parents deal with every day and to continue these conversations in our Real Life Moms Facebook group, where we would love for you to become part of our community. In this week's episode, I'm joined by Jenny Hecht, a mother, a licensed clinical social worker with over 20 years of experience working with middle school and high school age youth and adults. She is a passionate advocate for suicide prevention, serving on multiple community programs, including Coley's Closet and Sources of Strength. And today she's here to help me discuss suicide prevention. Hi, Jenny. Welcome back to Real Life Moms. You are a guest on our first season where we discuss how to maintain a close relationship with your teen. And I have to say that was our most popular episode. So congratulations. That's really nice to hear. (laughs) Yeah, people are loving that one. And it's still growing, which is is so exciting. That's awesome. Um, It's Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, just bringing you back on because you have you're a licensed clinical social worker, you work with middle school and high schoolers, mm-hmm. and you're also part of a nonprofit peer education organization that works and spreads understanding of depression and the prevention of youth suicide mm-hmm. called Coley's Closet. Mm-hmm. I thought you were this perfect person to kind of discuss this topic of suicide prevention with me. Awesome. I'm delighted to have the opportunity. But, you know, I was thinking about this topic and I know for me, it's, it's kind of a terrifying one, right? Mm-hmm especially having teens, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, this can happen at any age. It can happen to adults, spouses, right? Sure. Teens. But for some reason, that teen group really freaks me out the most. Of course. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, what are some signs? What should we be looking for? Are there warning signs to tell us, okay, my teen might be in trouble and need some more attention? Let me start by saying that I'm also involved with two other organizations in addition to Forest Closet. Please. One is called the Live Project, and I'll I'll talk about the Live Project a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is called Sources of Strength. And Sources of Strength is a program I became involved in when I was working at Fairview High School as a mental health crisis interventionist um, from 2009 to two, or no 2011 to 2014. I was there, and um, I became involved with them because. I had gone to a suicide prevention symposium that um, I believe Adams County was holding. And we saw Scott Lomery, who is the executive director of the organization, do a presentation. And I was sitting at the table with someone from public health who asked myself and our Fairview High School administrator if we'd be willing to pilot that program because they were looking to um, fund a, a, a placement of the program, the licensure of the program in a school in BVSD. And so I became involved in, I think it was 2012 and I got trained as a trainer and in the training, and I'll talk more about sources of strength later as well, but in the Mm -hmm. training, we asked the young people, okay, so what are some of the things that you look for when, or what are some of the things that when you see them, they're red flags for you that you may need to be concerned about a friend. And at the end of that exercise, what they have realized is that almost everything that they listed was a change. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really important because their changes in behavior, changes in physical presentation, changes in um, academic performance, changes in interest in things that they like, 
be, and I think that's really important, Lisa, because a lot of times people will see a young person who looks, you know, really withdrawn and maybe is dressed in a way that we might assume means that they're depressed, but they're actually not. That's just their mm. style. But if your child goes from, you know, being really open and gregarious and wearing bright colors to suddenly wearing a hoodie up all the time that's, you know, dark colors and, and is withdrawn, those are all changes that are important to notice. So I think that's the biggest thing because you can look at warning sign lists and start to get concerned, but you have to ask what, where did this person start out? What has changed? So when I ask young people what they look for, they talk about um, changes in eating habits, mm -hmm. um, noticing that their friends are starting to not eat as much during lunch or are binge eating, noticing um, a difference in interest in activities that they had really enjoyed, but no longer really seem to be leaning into changes in motivation for going out socially with friends or, you know, leaning into their academics, things like that, which again, if you have a kid who's never really been a strong student or a kid who's always been an introvert, then their lack of academic performance or lack of social connection is not necessarily a flag for suicide. It's mm -hmm. if that's a change from who they were. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. My question, though, I have to say, because I'm thinking of teens, right? Yeah. They are like one day, one way, another day, a totally different person. Absolutely. Like when you say change, how long is this like a week's worth, a month's worth? Like what yeah. are we talking? Yeah. So the common wisdom in the mental health field around identification and diagnosis of depression is behaviors that sustain for more than two weeks. So when the when um, Boulder County does the Healthy Kids Colorado survey every couple years with young people, the question that assesses depression is, have you felt sad or hopeless for two or more weeks? Mm, okay. Sustained, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that this is where I would bring in what the Live Project is. And I don't need to get into the details of what the organization is yet at this point in the conversation, but mm -hmm. what their tagline is, is fearless conversations, mm -hmm. right? So I think what happens is we see red flags in our kids, whether they're our children or our children's friends, or if you're an educator, you see them in your students. And people are afraid to ask the question, what is happening for you, Right. There may just be suddenly I'm interested in dressing this way. It may just be that suddenly I'm no longer interested in soccer, but it could be that something is going on. And when we're afraid of saying the words, are you having thoughts of hurting or killing yourself? Because traditionally that fear is born out of people believing that it's somehow going to give this person an idea mm -hmm. um, that is so misguided. Because when you say, I'm thinking of teens, they change all the time. Yes. So we have to be willing to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And if our children as parents are not comfortable telling us and we're concerned, then we need to make sure that they're connected to other adults that we can trust, whether that's a therapist or not, you know, a teacher that has a good relationship with them as an interventionist. So working for mental health partners and working as a crisis interventionist, Way back, I used to work in middle schools, and I often had parents call me in sixth grade and say, there's nothing going on with my kid yet, but I want to get them in your office and connected with you so in case they have struggles, 
that they can talk to you. Same with my private practice. I'll have people say, my kid is just starting middle school or high school. Mm -hmm. I want to get them connected to someone so that there's someone that they can talk to. But it's really about these conversations that we're afraid to have. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things we talk about in Sources of Strength is like, if you hear that your child is listening to really sad music on repeat in their room and they've been isolating, you can sit outside of their room and formulate all kinds of scary scenarios about what's going on. But you're not actually going to get any more information than your assumptions, which could be very misguided, unless you're willing to step into that room, whether I mean literally or metaphorically, and lean into that conversation with concern. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I want to just say, Lisa, that one of the things that's really important to remember as a parent is that our anger often comes from fear. Mm-hmm. Right? You often see like parents of small children at a crosswalk at an intersection and the small child starts to run out into traffic and you see the parent grab them and start yelling at them. They're scared, mm-hmm. right? So often what happens is when we see that our children are showing red flags, what I see with some parents is their fear causes them to become more controlling, more judgmental. Instead of asking questions, they'll just be like, oh, look who decided to join us after being in their room forever. Or, oh, I'm so glad that you finally decided to have your hood down. Things that, of course, are well-intentioned. It's so scary to go through that. But um, remembering that there has to be a safety for someone to be vulnerable enough to lean into a question, are you okay? Are you having thoughts of hurting or killing yourself? To say, yes, I am, and I need help without there being judgment or anger or, you know, really as a parent trying to regulate your response to hearing something like that. Mm -hmm. And then if your child says, no, there's nothing going on, how do you trust that? How do you let your vigilance be high enough that you're not going to miss something, but also you're not starting to be held hostage by fear so that the reins on your child out of concern become shorter and shorter and shorter? which then often, as I said in our last conversation on your podcast, the more control we try to have, the less likely our child is to be open with us. So it's no wonder people are uncomfortable with this because it's a very scary situation to know how to move through. And there's a lot of fine lines. Yeah. And I'm, I'm listening to like, you know, t- talking to your kid, asking them the questions and I'm going, okay, what are the questions and, you know, I, I'm thinking almost like, you know, the puberty talk or the sex talk, right? Mm-hmm. You have to talk about those things. And it's kind of like you have these little prep talks, you know, before sure. um, the actual event. And I'm kind of feeling like with suicide, you know, you have those talks too. I mean, I know I've discussed it with my kids as well, not because they were in that place, um, mm-hmm. but it's just, you know, I think my first discussion was poor. It was kind of like, you know, that's not a choice, <laughs> you know, something right. really terrible. Um, <laughs> but then we moved past that and, and talked about, you know, different, different things. Um, but yeah. what are those conversations like besides just even being in the moment, but even like, you know, in the prevention piece mm-hmm. of educating our children on suicide and, you know, what, what are those conversations with your kids? That is such a good question, Lisa. And I think one of my biggest frustrations being in the field of mental health for as long as I have is that so much of our work is intervention, is when we notice that there are problems, which is why I'm grateful to be part of Sources of Strength, which is a program that seeks to reduce 
all destructive decisions, not just the possibility of suicide, um, through building of resiliency and an understanding of, of how to be well. So very similar to you know some other pie charts that you can find online around the elements of wellness, Sources of Strength did all this research into what are the eight areas um, that are you know domains that are helpful in, in making sure that somebody is resilient to the ups and downs of life. Not that they're not going to experience the difficult times, but that they will be resilient. And those are family support and positive friends, mentors, healthy activities, generosity, spirituality, and a focus on and comfortability talking about both physical health and mental health. Because to be honest, that's one of the biggest barriers to this, Lisa, is that the idea of talking about mental health is still stigmatized in our society. Mm -hmm. I often say to the kids that I'm training for sources or even coolies that if we go down to like Pearl Street Mall in Boulder and we're to walk around and survey people saying, you know, we're doing a study for health class about people's physical health and how would you rate your physical health on a scale of one to 10? And how would you rate your effort to um, maintain or improve your physical health on a scale of one to 10? Most people would probably not be too uncomfortable answering that question. Um, it's very relatable that we all wish that we could be healthier and have a hard time with self-control or discipline. Um, we get inspired by people when they talk about the things that they're doing to, to take care of their, their physical health. But were we to change to mental health and go around asking people to rate their mental health on a scale of one to 10 and talk about um, on a scale of one to 10, how they would, uh, how they would rate their efforts to improve or strengthen their mental health, that's a whole different response. Then people start to feel like that's too personal of a question. What right do you have to ask that? And I think that sense that mental health is this domain that's private and something that we should not necessarily be ashamed of, but not really be discussing publicly is what perpetuates that. And mm -hmm. so what happens is in a lot of family systems that I see, um, talking about emotions is not something that is in the wheelhouse of people's comfort level. And what I love about the conversation that Sources of Strength allows me to have that I have very broadly with my family members, with my clients, is based on the general upstream model of prevention from public health models, which is that there's kind of this parable in public health that um, there was a, a person who lived in a, a village by a river that one day heard a scream coming from the river, went down, saw somebody about to go over the waterfall, dove in, saved them. Just as they were getting to shore, they heard another scream. They realized that they can't save everybody themselves, so they go and get help. And the whole town mobilizes and builds watchtowers and gets everyone trained in CPR. And they're saving a lot of lives, but people are still getting through. And so one day, this individual who started this whole movement is walking upstream and everybody says, where are you going? We need you here. And they say, I'm going to see where people are falling in. Mm. And the idea, so this is still to answer your question about conversation, because I think it goes far before we even start seeing warning signs is letting our kids understand from an early age that all human beings, regardless of where they live, what demographics are different about them, any differences, if they have beating heart and breathing lungs, they're going to feel 
one of three emotions when they're stressed or overwhelmed, one or more of them, because I'm lucky enough to feel all three at once very often. (laughs) So when they're stressed or overwhelmed, they're going to feel anxiety, sadness, or anger. Mm-hmm. And if you think about those feelings as being what that river represents in the upstream parable, we need to help people understand that the first third of that river, when they first fall in, the water is probably only about knee deep and the current's not that strong. And if they can avoid the two things that we often fall prey to, which are shame and denial which look like, oh my God, why am I in this river? Nobody else falls in this river. I suck for falling in this river and I can't let anybody see. Or what river? I'm not wet. I don't know what you're talking about. Those two things keep us in there. But if we are in that part of the river and we can recognize it without shaming ourselves, then we can lean into those eight areas that sources of strength identifies or the seven areas of wellness or whatever we recognize as being the things that help us when we're struggling. And when I talk to young people and just ask them the question, like, what are some of the things that you lean into when you are struggling with anxiety or sadness or anger? It's friends, it's family, it's their healthy activities, Mm -hmm. it's being of service, it's talking to their therapist, it's all those things on the wheel. Sometimes though, either we stay in the river or we often might fall in where it's chest deep right? Maybe it's a big enough thing that triggers us to fall into that river of those big three emotions. And the water is now chest deep and the current's a little bit stronger. So it's the part of the river where you can't necessarily climb out yourself. You can maybe grab onto a root that's sticking out from a tree out of the side of the river. And now you need to call for help, which means you still can't be paralyzed by shame or denial, which means it needs to be safe to talk about how you're feeling in your family system, in your community. You need to be able to trust that people are going to come to your aid. So there needs to be a a sense of reliability in a family system that if I say I'm struggling, that it will be addressed because I see that reliability from my parents or from the people in my life that if I need something, they will show up and they will follow through. And you need to be willing to accept help, which so many people are afraid of doing because somehow it makes them seem weak or I'm the person who is the helper and I don't want to take help or be a burden. So Mm. if we can get past all those things, then we can still climb out of the river. But sometimes for myriad reasons, whether it's that we can't get past denial or shame, that we don't have enough sources of strength in our life, that we don't trust people, you might end up in this part of the river where the water is so deep and the current is so strong and you see that waterfall coming that you kind of give up. And that is where any number of destructive decisions can be leaned into to distract and numb and help with the pain of going over the waterfall. And that spectrum of destructive decisions, the most extreme of which is getting out, exiting, attempting suicide. And if you think about fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, which are our stress responses, suicide is the ultimate flight, Mm -hmm. right? So when to go back to your original question of what are the conversations we have with our kids, this goes back to early childhood. Now, if you have a teenager and you're listening to this and you're like, well, that's unfortunate because it's too late for me. (laughs) It's never too late, right? We want to say Mm -hmm. to our kids, if, if we're starting from scratch, it's just starting conversation about where in your body do you feel these emotions? How do you know when you're angry or worried or sad? How do you identify that? What do you think you've learned from the adults around you about how to manage those feelings? Like, what do you see me do when I feel those feelings? Or what do you find helps you? 
-hmm. And if you've gone up until their teenage years without having those conversations, that's okay. You can sit them down and say, I realize that we've gotten this far into your life without having these conversations. So let's have them now Mm -hmm. because you want to increase emotional literacy, the capacity for, for us to identify what we're feeling and communicate it. You want a home where it's safe to talk about how you feel Mm -hmm. and also a home where it's safe to talk to other people about how you feel. Mm -hmm. So if someone calls from school and says your child is expressing that they are having thoughts of killing themselves and your fear causes you to be angry at them for sharing that with someone at school before you and now your shame of maybe being perceived as not a good parent because your child wants to die by suicide you know i think our feelings can really cloud our ability Mm -hmm. to show up and remember that a dysregulated adult is never going to help regulate a dysregulated Mm -hmm. child yeah. Right? Dysregulated adults can't regulate other dysregulated adults. <laughs> certainly can't do it with a child or an adolescent. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I know I'm kind of going all over the place, Lisa, but are you feeling like I'm getting to your question? Yeah. No, I'm sitting here imagining this, this talk with my kid as you speak. I'm like, have I asked those questions? I know we have a little bit, but I think I'm going to actually like after this conversation, <laughs> go upstairs and have yeah. another one because it, it, it does make me think. And I think what I'm also getting out of it too is when you're feeling these things, the pre-conversation, you know, what are those really things that get you out of it, you know, and focusing on those things, what gets you through when you're only knee high in the water or maybe chest high. Right. Um, And I think that's an important conversation. And I think it's also important for me to know that about my kids. What Mm -hmm. are those things? Because at least when they are in these states, you know, not that they're over the edge, you know, going contemplating suicide, but even just seeing those states, because we have a lot of anxiety in our house, there is I mean, we're teens, right? There's depression, there's moods, there's lots of changes. Um, But if I already had those conversations and knew what are the things that really fill them? You know, maybe I can make sure that they're there or or asking them like, hey, what do you need? I know you like these things. What do you need that would pull you out of this? You know, having more. I just think that's just a handy thing to know, you know. Absolutely. (laughs) And I can tell you that it's really empowering for the adults and young people's lives to have these skills um, of questions to ask, because otherwise it's so overwhelming that we avoid. Mm -hmm. And in schools... So um, if your listeners want to see what I'm about to refer to, if you go to sourcesofstrength.org, mm-hmm. all one word, no capitalization necessary, um, you can see the wheel, the wheel of the eight strengths. And this comes on posters that are given out to teachers and schools that, that do the program. And one of the schools that we work with, one of the teachers told us that during his planning period, he went out into the hallway and there was a young woman and then from the high school, she it was a student sitting in the hallway crying. And he said, you know, I didn't know this kid. I didn't want to just go over to her and say, let me take you down to counseling. I didn't want to go over and say what's going on for you because she doesn't know me. So I asked her if she minded coming over to my door for a minute. And I introduced myself and I showed her the poster and I said, listen, I'm part of a group that tries to help people understand the ways that they can help themselves when they're struggling. And I know you don't know me, so I would imagine you don't want to talk to me about what you're struggling with, but I can tell you're struggling. Is that fair? And she said, yes. And so he looked at the wheel, he pointed to it and he said, so what on this wheel feels like it could be helpful to you right now? 
And the girl pointed to positive friends and he said, okay, so what, what friend would you let me to see if I can, can find? And he was able to get permission for a friend to be pulled out of class. And the friend was okay missing a little bit of class and went into this teacher's classroom with the girl that was struggling. And he gave them some space for a few minutes. And it was profound because that mm-hmm. girl was empowered to identify what would help her. She was experiencing the trust of an adult around her who could have allowed their fear to cause them to way over respond or react in a way that made that child feel like they were in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something we have to be very cautious of with suicide, because I will tell you that if a school has to call a police officer to, to transport a child to a hospital because of suicidality, they will be put in the back of a police car. And it's not because the police are terrible people, but just that experience is gonna make them feel like they've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And the, the language we use that someone has committed suicide is mm-hmm. the language we use about committing a crime. So the language mm-hmm. has started to, we've really tried to start using the language died by suicide to remove some of that stigma. So that young person in that moment felt validated by the teacher, did not feel pressed into giving personal information, and was invited into this idea of sources of strength. And then that teacher just simply followed up with the, the kid's counselor and said, you might want to check in with her. Um, mm-hmm. But it wasn't like, let me march you down to counseling because I don't know what to do with you kind of a thing. Right. It empowers us. And um, I think that's really the most important piece of this whole thing is that when people are hurting, we feel disempowered because we can't make it better. So we, we often avoid it. Mm -hmm. If you think about when you have a friend who loses someone, not even to suicide, but if you have a friend who loses someone important in their life, it's often very uncomfortable to ask them about that because you're worried that you're going to bring up painful memories. But the reality is when people are in pain, they're thinking about that pain all the time. And when we ask them about it, it gives them permission to take it from being a secret into a connection. And that can often be the most profound moment of somebody's healing is that transition. Yeah, so true. I mean, I know, think about when someone, yeah, loses some someone, it's like, I don't, you don't even know what to say, right? Like, it's, you feel like you're going to say the wrong thing. And I can imagine in this situation... It's the same thing. So I would say they're never going to be easy. And I have done more suicide risk assessments than I would have ever cared to have done in my life. Saying the words, are you having thoughts of killing yourself are never going to get easier because if that person says yes, Mm -hmm. then what do you do? And I think that's the next question is when people say. Exactly. What do you do? Exactly. Yeah. So I think the most important thing for people to remember is you don't have to know what to do. You just need to be able to connect that person to someone who does. That's all, Mm -hmm. is be a connector. You don't need to know what to do, but you need to be willing to stay with that person until they are connected to the appropriate help. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I see in my private practice work is... um, in addition to young people who are struggling with depression and suicide themselves, those whose friends are and they don't know what to do and they're feeling the burden of trying to keep their friends alive because of the code of secrecy around this, mm-hmm. right? And when this is another piece from Sources of Strength is when I train young people as peer leaders in the program, 
you know, I say, I, I want you to think about the following scenario. If you had a friend who came to school on a Monday, starting to talk about not feeling very well. And by Wednesday, you noticed that they were not eating very much. They were, you know, looking like they weren't taking very good care of themselves. And by Friday, they were flushed, burning up and passing out in class. And you say to them, I think we need to go to the nurse. And they say, oh my God, no, I have a soccer game this weekend and I have tests next week and people are going to make a big deal out of it. And I, I, no, the chances are pretty good that you're not going to listen to them because mm -hmm. you will recognize that the delirium of their illness is preventing them from recognizing that they need help. You will be aware that they are physically in danger if they don't get help. And so you are much more likely to go against their wishes and say, no, we're going to the nurse or I'm telling somebody that you're sick. But if that scenario were to change, again, the physical health, mental health scenario, right? Your friend comes in on Monday and says they're not feeling well. By Wednesday, you notice that they have stopped eating as much and they're looking like they're not taking care of themselves. And on Friday, you see cuts on their arm. And you say to them, I'm really concerned about you. I'd like to go see the counselor. And they say, no, you better not tell anyone because I have too much going on and I don't want people to make a big deal. And this has been corroborated by the youth that I'm working with. They say, absolutely not. Then it's all bets are off. I'm not going to break my, my friend's trust. Mm -hmm. And we have to ask ourselves why, right? But mm -hmm. also what I'll say to those young people is you can't possibly help your friend. Not because you don't know them because that's the, the answer that I usually get is how is a, a counselor or a therapist going to know my friend better than me? And this isn't just mm -hmm. adolescents. This is also adults too. How, how is anyone going to know my family member better than me? What we mm -hmm. know about our brain chemistry, and I think I talked about this the, on my first appearance with you was um, that when we are triggered into a stress response, we lose our ability to connect to our prefrontal cortex, which is the seat of all of our executive functions, which includes our impulse control, our organization, our problem solving, our critical thinking skills. And we are 100% driven by our amygdala, fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, which is where someone who is struggling with their mental health and potential suicidality is as well. So remember, I said a dysregulated person cannot regulate another dysregulated person. If my friend is suicidal, mm -hmm. I'm probably in that stressed space, which means I can't think clearly either about mm -hmm. what to do or how to help them. So my job as the person who cares about them is to stay with them because our friendship, our relationship is a source of strength to them. And then I'm going to connect them to someone who is in their prefrontal cortex, in that state of their brain that can help us problem solve. So you don't need to know what to do. And that might look like if you're an adolescent, taking your, your friend down to counseling. If you're a parent of an adolescent, it might be taking your child to their counselor with you. It might be sitting with your friend while they call the National Suicide Hotline or the Colorado Crisis Line. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of resources. Um, so I think removing that pressure from yourself to be the problem solver, to know how to help, that might be one of the most important barriers to somebody's fear of asking the question. 
And I just keep thinking though, I can see these teens, you know, like just what you're saying, there is this secrecy, this, as much as we can say to them, listen, you're not, you're not protecting your friend. You're not actually being the friend you think you're being by yeah. keeping this, right? Um, yeah. You need to talk to somebody. It, it, it is so hard because that's in that state at being a teen, that is, that is your connection, right? Is the friends and then breaking that trust, I feel like it's so hard. So sure. How does that conversation, like, you know, how does that conversation go? Almost like they could lose this friend both ways. So I'm going to share with you something that we say in Coley's Closet, which are Mm -hmm. very blunt and harsh words, but we're having the conversation. So it's important for me to say that. That when Coley's Closet does presentations, they say in a case like that, you have to ask yourself, would you rather your friend be alive and angry at you? Mm. Or would you rather have your friend die? and wonder if there was anything you could do. Yeah. Okay. That's perfect. (laughs) Just perfect. And it's a big, it's a very weighty thing, right? That's Mm -hmm. a lot. I mean, people will say like, that's a lot to put on a young person. Well, yes, but we can't, if if they're already dealing with these very grown up issues, we can't protect them from the reality of the grown up issues, right? They're Mm -hmm. already in them. We need to give them the tools to see clearly and understand what needs to be done to have appropriate boundaries to protect themselves and to help their friends, right? Where do I end and that other person begins? How do I um, make sure that I'm taking good enough care of myself that I'm not drowning? And part of that is being able to not be held hostage by that fear. And I can say with confidence, Lisa, because I've, I've been working with teens for over 20 years and for a very long time, I was in schools. So I wasn't just working with an individual in a vacuum, which is what it can sometimes feel like in private practice. I was seeing them in their natural habitat, right? (laughs) And often seeing them with their friends or hearing follow-up. And never once in 22 years have I seen a friendship end because of this. I have seen Mm -hmm. friendships be on pause for as much as a couple of years, Mm -hmm. but in every situation without exception that I know of, that person who was suicidal has come back to the friend who reported and said, thank you for saving my life. Mm. Once they were healthy, because when people are not healthy, I mean, let's think about it this way, Lisa, addiction, right? When someone is addicted to something, when it is going to be taken from them, they get angry, Mm. right? We can see that clearly with things like drugs and alcohol or cigarettes, When someone is in pain and they become addicted to the idea of escape, when we get in the way of that, of course, they're going to be angry. More often than not, they're conflicted because most people who are talking about feeling like they want to die actually want help, Mm -hmm. right? If I really want to get away with something, I'm not going to talk about it. True. I'm talking about it. It's probably because I want help and I want somebody to ask me more questions. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And I know that's really scary, especially for young people, because their friendships are their lifeblood. It's what gives them oxygen to have those friendships. And so the idea of losing someone is really, really hard, especially if there's a domino effect. Like if I'm in a group of friends and we all knew that somebody was feeling suicidal and I'm the one who goes and tells the truth. Now that whole friend group might be angry at me and I have to have the tolerance to live with that discomfort, knowing that I did the right thing, which is a lot to ask anyone, much less an adolescent. Um, So that's why this has to be, that's why I work with so many organizations, because I feel like we have to address this 
on so many levels. There needs to be prevention. There needs to be early education in elementary school about identifying our own feelings and how to get other people to talk about their feelings and what helps us so that we don't just end up being adolescents or adults that sit in our groups of friends and just talk about how miserable we all are and have no idea how to help each other, especially now, because I have seen the fact that we are all struggling with a lot of existential anxiety and depression, given the myriad things that we face as a culture, a community, a country, a globe right now, mm-hmm. the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is safety and security. Um, and if your listeners are, listeners are not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, as I encourage them to go Google it, but it's a pyramid that shows that self-actualization, which is what we hope for our children, what we hope for ourselves, that they can realize their best selves by getting to know themselves and feeling safe and comfortable and loved enough to become their best version of themselves, starts with a foundation on the bottom of that pyramid of safety and security. Mm-hmm. And that foundation is full of holes right now. Mm-hmm. And so it is that much more important that we are inviting, encouraging, and making young people feel safe in talking about how they feel, not just by inviting it, but by modeling it, right? Being willing to be vulnerable um, in our conversations with our kids at dinner and not just asking them to report to us, but sharing what we struggle with and how we deal with it. Um, Because more so than ever now, there needs to be the capacity to connect because, you know, I, I don't know if I've shared this before in the last episode or not, but I recently heard someone say that the opposite of addiction is connection. And it was like a punch in the gut to hear that. Mm, yeah. so the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection because addiction is inherently an isolative experience of shame and fear of being found out, whatever it is that we're addicted to, even if it's something like, caffeine, sugar, or devices, it's an accepted addiction, but we still won't admit that we're addicted because the word Mm -hmm. addicted feels like a dirty word, right? Mm -hmm. So if we know that the opposite of addiction is connection, therefore we must elevate that as a priority that when our kids are isolating from us, that we can't just go, oh, that's teenage angst or teenage drama or, oh, all teenagers love to be in their room all the time. When we have opportunities We need to lean in and say, how are you? What's going on? On a scale of one to 10, how do you see your mental health right now? Right? Mm -hmm. How can I support you? Have you ever seen this wheel of strengths? Like, let's assess this as a family. Mm -hmm. And all the organizations that I work with have so much available online for people to do. And that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, share these, like, what are your recommended resources because you're bringing up so many great like the wheel and all this stuff yeah but I think I think um most of us don't know that right we don't know we're not educated on this you're a mental health practitioner so you've got all these great tools so what are some tools that you would recommend for parents um that they can kind of research on their own that would be helpful in these really hard conversations So the first thing that I want everybody to know is that um, in the States, we have the National Suicide Hotline, obviously, which is a national um, 
number that you can call is now 988. They just recently changed it from a 1-800 number to a three-digit number. So it's easy to remember and access. Mm. And it's called the 988 Lifeline now. Um, And it's available 24 hours and is in multiple languages and is a place where anyone can call to get support if they are concerned about themselves or someone else. There's also the Trevor Project, which is a 24-hour hotline specifically for individuals who identify as queer in some way um, in terms of gender or sexuality. So that's a safe um, number for them to call and know that they're going to be talking to someone Mm-hmm. that will understand and come from a place of care. Um, in Colorado, we also have Colorado Crisis Services, which is, I'm not sure if other states have something like this, but I suspect that they do. Um, it's a centralized number that that someone can call, but it patches you into whatever your geographically local mental health services are. So that if you need follow-up, you know that you're connecting to someone who's in your area. And this is also important for rural communities in Colorado where there aren't places in their area. So being able to patch into Colorado Crisis Services and speak to licensed professionals in a confidential way when you may live hours from the nearest facility where you could actually go speak to a therapist is really important. Mm -hmm. So those are three things I want everyone to know about. Now, beyond Mm -hmm. that, if you are concerned about yourself or someone else and it's not so acute and imminent that you would call a hotline. I really encourage people to go to the liveproject.org and that's the L-I-V as in Victor project.org. And the Live Project was um, created by Tess and Honey Hunnick and her mom, Honey Buff, B-E-U-F. Um, they lost their daughter and sister, Liv, in 2019 to suicide. She was in college. And she had been struggling with depression for a very long time and anxiety. And when she died, her sister Tess, who was quite a bit older than her, talked about how she would always just say to her sister, are you safe when she was concerned about her? And she realized after Liv passed that she never actually said the words, are you thinking of killing yourself? Mm. And that is where the idea of fearless conversations came out. So Tess and Honey... Um, worked with someone who approached them, who was a filmmaker, asking if they might want to do a documentary about um, Olivia. And it's really the original film was basically what Tess calls a 30-minute love letter to her sister. That is really her reading a letter that she wrote after Liv died that is spoken over various images. And they started to screen that Um, right before COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, they continued to do it virtually and then it expanded. And now they have a youth advisory board. They're doing um, in-person activities based on a lot of their, 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 the game that goes there and some of their other work, which I can explain in a moment, but they're doing a lot of in-person workshops with young people trying to start these conversations. They've created this game that I just referenced that you can purchase. That's, um, was designed by young people in concert with a game mechanics design company that is based on three levels of going there. So it's called the game that goes there and there's kind of going there, almost going there and we're going there, which is a way to allow someone to feel empowered to decide how deep they want to go. But it invites conversation that therapists can use, families can use, schools can use 
to get kids talking more openly. And it's not all mental health questions. They're, you know, in the, the most, um, the most minimal going there deck, which I think is the kind of going there. It's like, what's a family tradition that you really love? You know, mm. those kinds of questions. So building connection. But the yeah. reason that I'm inviting everyone to go to this page first is because on the homepage, there are two buttons. I'm worried about myself and I'm worried about someone else. And if you click on I'm worried about someone else, it talks about the ask, listen, do model. If you are concerned about someone else, here's a guide to a fearless conversation. Ask. When you ask, they feel seen. And then there's bullets about how to ask. Listen. When you listen, they feel less alone. And then there's bullets. Do. When you take action, you show you care. And then there's bullets about what to do. If you're concerned about yourself and you click on the button, they created a new acronym, LIVE. Listen, identify, vocalize. So listen to yourself with bullets about how to do that. Identify, identify common patterns with bullets about how to do that. And vocalize, voice for relief with bullets about how to do that. So right away, there's a little bit of a map for people that are feeling overwhelmed. What do I do, right? Mm -hmm. um, Great. Sourcesofstrength.org is the wheel that I've been talking about. And Sources of Strength is a program that is really a foundational philosophy that is why I loved it as a school employee, because I hated getting boxes of here's your workbook and posters to do this workshop with kids, because it doesn't take into account the specific culture and needs of your school community or your community at large, because now they do more community-based programs outside of schools. But what it is, is creating a culture based on the, the foundational belief that all human beings experience these difficult feelings. All of us, not just kids, need to deal with working on how to develop and build resiliency, how to model resiliency, how to understand what makes us well. And so I encourage people to ask their school districts, do you have this program? And if not, what are you doing to address this, this issue? I have been fortunate enough to work with the Broomfield community here in Colorado to do a community-based one over the summer where the young people invited adults and businesses and in the community to join them in conversation about how to address the epidemic of depression and suicide and isolation in their community. So it goes beyond educating about the warning signs that someone mm -hmm. is in danger. We have to have that. We must have that level of intervention, of course. But knowing how to tell that someone's in danger is only one piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So all of this other stuff about fearless conversations and sources of strength take us further up that river. And if we remember that emotions are contagious, they spread like secondhand smoke, and that the energy, the emotional energy of any group of people, whether we're talking about a friend group, a family system, a community, a school, a workplace, the energy, the emotional energy of that space is going to tilt towards whatever the loudest energy is. And in a workplace, it's usually the boss. In a, in a school, it's often the teacher. In a family system, it's often the parent. So we as adults are equally responsible for leaning into these conversations and questions with ourselves and our partners and our peers to make sure that we are modeling and setting that foundation of safety and security for adolescents to do so too. Because I can't tell you how often I see dysregulated parents who are panicked about their child's anxiety and depression, and they're not looking in a mirror. 
They are not looking at the fact that they are the loudest energy in that family system and it's contagious. And on the flip side, if you have a really high needs kid who is really struggling with mental health, that can really begin to challenge your own mental health because mm -hmm. now you're tilting towards that energy. So either way, you need to be aware of what you need, making sure you have enough support, enough resources to feel adequately armed to lean into those conversations, lean into their pain and feel empowered to do so. I'm excited about this, the live project, the checklist. I just think that's such a great, they're all great tools, but just to have that like in the moment, you know, clicking on how to help and ask questions. Cause I think mm -hmm. we all struggle with, yeah, what to ask, where to go, you know, yeah. what to do. And it just seems like it's, that's such a great resource just to have in the moment and then decide if you need more. Wow. These are great. And you do so much and it's, it's, thank you for putting it in perspective of that. It's multi levels, you know, it's not just this one thing of the puzzle, you know, it's not just yeah. identifying like, okay, this kid can be in trouble, but there's so many more levels to it and giving us resources to be able to address those. It's Absolutely. really, really important. I really want to add this piece about um, the perspective of what young people are upset about. I think there's often a lot of judgment that kids are being dramatic or um, wanting attention when they're talking about having really big, intense feelings about things that we as adults think, you know, we dealt with that, or that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, or other kids are dealing with that. And I don't understand why this is such a big problem for you. And so I want to just offer this metaphor of a pit in the ground, that when we feel like we've fallen in a pit in the ground because we feel inadequate, we feel anxious, we feel depressed, whatever it is that's, that's thrown us into that pit, similar to the river, I love metaphors, <laughs> um, you can see the world happening above you up there, right? And in order to climb out, you need the strength, the will, and the determination, and that means that we need to be standing on our feet, number one, willing to look up and assess how we're going to climb up. Are there people around the opening that are lending us a hand or a rope? Um, and there are myriad reasons why we might not be able to climb out. There might be a grate over that hole, which is what I usually use as a metaphor for a chemical imbalance requiring medication. But then when you take that medication, all that happens is the grate lifts. It doesn't propel you out of the hole. Maybe somebody has offered you a rope, but then when you go to take it, they walk away and they drop it. Or maybe you start to climb and something falls on you from outside because you're being beaten when you're down, which often happens, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think of falling in that pit because of a breakup or because our academics are overwhelming or because of a friendship problem... For many reasons, some kids may be able to climb right out because they've got tons of support, tons of people around them. Maybe the, the inside walls of the pit um, are a little bit easier to climb up. Maybe I have a real strong affirmation for climbing out. And I use that word because affirmation for life is one of the greatest indicators of um, a source of strength for someone who is feeling suicidal, meaning is there still a reason that they want to move towards their future that is not not wanting to make their family and friends sad? Not wanting people to be sad is not enough of a protective factor. Hmm. So affirmation for life, just like being in a pit and having enough affirmation to want us to, to put in the effort to climb out of the pit. What's outside of that pit for me, right? Is it worth me putting in the effort? So all of those factors 
compounded can cause someone to become suicidal and give up because they keep trying to climb out and they fall back in or they try to climb out and they get to the top and they realize there's nobody waiting to greet them and be happy that they're out of the pit or there's a chemical imbalance and they keep banging their head against the grate and they eventually give up. Mm-hmm. And so if we are just sitting on the bottom of this pit after a while, what's the point, right? So when people say like, there's no, that this child has not been through anything significant or there's no major thing happening in their world, why would they feel suicidal? It's sometimes that these people who become overwhelmingly depressed or develop a a lack of desire to continue living, it's because they've tried. And for whatever reason, they're having a hard time overcoming what they're feeling. And so they lose the belief that it's possible. Hmm. So there's lots of reasons why people will turn to suicide as an option. And Hmm. it's not always a sweeping major disastrous catastrophe. Yeah, I always like to say you don't know somebody else's story. And you also don't know somebody else's tolerance level. Mm-hmm. Just like if I hurt a part of my body and someone else hurts a part of their body, we may have different tolerances for pain. So our recovery may look different. Mm-hmm. The same is true of emotional pain. Oh, so what do we do for that kid who's stuck in the pit? Well, I mean, here's the thing. When you have a child who's under the age of 18, Mm-hmm. You can, against their will, put them in treatment. What's hard about that is you want to make sure they're with somebody who can hold their resistance for long enough to let it organically shift because no one is going to be forced into healing. But you can take your child who is under the age of 18 and say, you must go into this program, see a therapist. Once your child is over the age of 18, you no longer have that capacity which is why this early intervention is so important because I work with so many parents of college age students who I of course can't talk to or share information with. I can receive their concerns, but I can't share information because now their child is over the age of 18 and protected by confidentiality at the complete level. And it feels really powerless Hmm. because you really have no control. So I, I hate to use the word control and force, but this is why I believe it's so important for us to recognize the, the priority of teaching emotional literacy and having family systems and community systems where it is safe and okay and encouraged to talk openly about emotions well before people become the age of 18, because then it becomes a lot harder to intervene. Mm, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. Ooh, this is this is tough stuff, and I keep I keep thinking back to our gun violence talk too, um, where I'm just gonna put it out there because we're here. Is just that I think um, suicides that are attempted by by guns in the home per se are like ninety percent more likely to be successful. So yeah. if you do have one in your home, just make sure you are locking it away where they have no idea because they will come home with a bad day and there's not a lot of choices you know like if they can go to sleep and wake up the next morning they might have a different attitude so just things that are in the home like that making sure we are locking those away absolutely and i think um that you can even go beyond guns mm-hmm. you know if you have a child you are concerned at all about making sure medications are locked up, 
um, just making sure that you're being vigilant because as I said earlier, when our stress response triggers and we lose the connection to the prefrontal cortex, that's where our impulse control is. So as you say, when someone has a bad day and they have the means to make an impulsive choice, mm -hmm. I'm not going to give too many details, Lisa, but I do in the last 22 years, I was sadly privy to a situation where a young person tried to take their life chemically and change their mind mm. about wanting to die when their organs were already failing and it was too late. Ugh. And that is horrifying, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's all of it is horrifying, but so yeah, your point is really well made. We need to make sure that access to easy means for meeting those impulsive needs when we're in pain are mitigated mm -hmm. in our homes. You know, just wrapping things up, what yep. what would you like just parents to kind of take away from this conversation? Yeah, I think first and foremost is having fearless conversation. Um, I unabashedly steal that from the Live Project because I think it's really important words. And recognizing that you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to know what to do. You just have to be willing to ask the questions and connect the person, whether it's your child or someone else, to someone who does know what to do. And once you have those resources, and in fact, we even have, I've had parents tell me that um, being given a handout that they then put on their refrigerator with a magnet proved to be a lifesaver when they realized that they actually needed it because they couldn't remember what numbers to call and they found it easily on their refrigerator. So what I'll tell people is put the suicide hotline in your phone under suicide or, you know, have like a note on your phone that's crisis numbers, something so that when you are like, oh my God, I can't think straight or remember what that podcast said or what I was told by my child's therapist, it's right there because that's what's going to happen when you're concerned about your child's safety. You're not going to be able to think straight. So empower yourself by making sure that everything that you need to connect someone who is in crisis to the people who know what to do is at your fingertips without you having to think too hard about it and be willing to have those uncomfortable, scary, fearless conversations so that you know when those resources are necessary. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's, I, I'm like, I'm going to put that in my <laughs> phone right after this conversation. I, first of all, I have to thank you for all that you're doing for this particular topic and just in the community and all the kids that you're helping, the teens, the adults, you do so much. So thank you. And Lisa, thank you for doing this podcast and inviting these really difficult topics. I mean, I know they're not all difficult, but when you do, you're doing such a huge service, especially globally to know that your reach is that big. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that we're bringing these topics out so people can talk about them more, have more resources. I mean, I learned so much about this tonight, so thank you. And I am right. going to go up and talk to my teens right now. Awesome. And I'm going to have some hard conversations just to start the process. Well, good for you for being willing to do that, Lisa. Thank you for listening to this important episode. September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. So please take the time to share this episode and these resources with someone you feel is in need. And just remember, don't be afraid to ask the hard questions.